Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, and this is another exciting edition of the Remnant Podcast. This week's podcast is brought to you by Podium, a better way to do reviews of businesses that you deal with, and we'll talk about more about that later. Um, as many of you know, I am an avid listener of National Review's lesser but still quite good uh, podcast, The Editors. And I will say, just on the record, and yes, I'm throwing shade, one of the things I cannot stand about The Editors, which again is a perfectly good niche podcast, is the way Rich Lowry, all praise be upon him, introduces the regular panel. And I, for one, will not get into a forced stage whisper to say that today we have the effervescent Raihan Salam. Actually, the one the thing that really drives me crazy is when he says the notorious MBD. Um, it just, I don't get it. And anyway, we can go off on that in a little bit. But anyway, we have, we, today we have Ryan Salam, my colleague, the executive editor at National Review. Indeed, indeed. And the author of Melting Pot or Civil War, a new book about immigration. And um, as I was telling you off air this morning, um, I listened to most of the podcast that you did with Ezra Klein, and I thought it was really interesting and really good. And it was actually the first of his podcast I listened to, so I might listen to it more. But the one thing he didn't do, which I think is a violation of the, the rules of our guild, is ask you, what is your book about? <laughs> so, what is your book about? My book came from this starting point of, gosh, I know some people who are really hopped up about immigration. They want to restrict immigration. They want to limit it. They feel like the system is out of control. It's chaotic. It's crazy. Then I know a lot of other folks, many of whom are folks like me uh, of recent immigrant origin. My, my parents are immigrants themselves who come at it from a totally different vantage point. They think of it as being compassionate. Let's be open. Uh, this is such a part of America's heritage, part of what makes us great. And I wanted to say to the folks in that latter camp, I understand where you're coming from. I hear you. I identify with you. And I believe that you need to be a bit more hard-headed and realistic. To the folks in the former camp, this is my world. I have been part of the conservative world pretty much my whole adult life. And I wanted to say to them, look, I understand wanting a controlled, managed system that absolutely makes sense. But you really need to come at this with some compassion, and you need to come at this from the spirit of wanting to knit the country together, not in a way that seems incredibly divisive and negative. So I wanted to speak to both of those audiences at once. And as you know, <laughs> speaking to two different groups that are really at loggerheads uh, is pretty challenging. So for years, when people asked me what my preferred immigration policy was, my standard pat answer was to have one, right? I, I personally, you know, I've always been... I, I, my first job in Washington was for Ben Wattenberg, who was a – he wasn't quite I – mean, we'll get to the phrase open borders, which I think has some problems to it. But he was a – it's funny. Back then, he called himself an immigration hawk, which meant he was pro-immigration. Today, immigration hawk means the reverse. But he was a very rah-rah immigration, far more than I was. But, uh, you know, I was – I did a lot of his dem demography and, and, and statistics stuff, and I was really drenched in that thing. And then when I came to NR, I was a real outlier because NR was always more restrictionist than I was. And so I'm actually – I'm kind of agnostic about this. My point about having an immigration policy is that the reason – one of the reasons why everything's so screwed up on the topic of immigration is that the government, elites, the parties, whatever, they argue over what immigration policy should be. But really what there has been for the last 25 years is sort of a bipartisan consensus 
to ignore the actual reality of how immigration works. If you, personally, if you want to say you have a million people a year, I'm fine with that. But then it's got to be a million. It can't be a million five. It can't be two million, whatever. And I think that a lot of the populist backlash that we've got now is precisely because so many people feel like they were lied to about all of this. Yes, this is something that's really striking. When you look at the bipartisan policy centers polling, for example, when you look at a lot of centrist groups, what they find is that the concern, the underlying anxiety is the sense that the system is not really a system, to your point, right. and also that it's not working in the national interest. And the feeling that, hey, no one feels obligated to tell a coherent, compelling story about why it is. Instead, you get this weird moralistic mishmash. You get a series of arguments that really are arguments for open borders to justify a policy that isn't open borders, that is in fact actually this incredibly weird arbitrary policy. In the book, I reference the fact that Barack Obama, when he was signing the executive order that gave rise to DACA, right. this program for you know folks who entered the country as minors, um, as unauthorized immigrants as minors, you know through no fault of their own. You know, this is a policy that a lot of folks were sympathetic to. I myself have some sympathy with it, too. Mm -hmm. But the way he was talking about it was about, um, you know, thou shalt not oppress a stranger. Right, you know, right. We've always been open and what have you. But when you frame it that way, the real sense you get is, well, wait a second. That logic applies to anyone. That right. logical, you know, the people who want to come to our country, they are overwhelmingly people who are law-abiding. They're looking for opportunity. They mean us no harm. But how do you actually make those choices? And that stuff gets shunted to the side by folks who are on this one side of the debate. And then you've got folks on the other side of the debate, you know, who, um, you know, folks on the restrictionist side, they really have not done a good job of defanging the criticism that they're just hostile to immigration outright, mm -hmm. that their hostility is rooted um, in, uh, you know, kind of ethnic and racial anxieties that have been discredited or that kind of make them seem like people who reject native-born Americans, let's say, people who are very much a f part of the fabric of our country. So I think that in a way it's a proxy battle about the character of the country rather than thinking about the system itself and is the system actually helping us knit the country together. And that's what I wanted to get at. I wanted to try to find some kind of coherent, thoughtful, balanced narrative that could help us get on with the real work right. of thinking about how our national identity is changing and what kind of nation we want to be in the decades to come. Right. So the, the, the focus on the story part is like hugely important. This is my biggest – this has been my biggest criticism of – you know, it's weird. Basically, I get almost all of my views on immigration policy from two not very tall South Asians, you and, <laughs> you and Ramesh Panuru. And, um, uh, and you know, I'm, 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 I've always been very sympathetic to the policy arguments of National Review, which has been my home for 20 years now, in the sense that, you know, one of the most powerful arguments I always thought was immigration is a real issue. It, 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 creates real anxieties, real passions. And if you ignore any issue that does that for too long, if responsible people don't deal with an issue, irresponsible politicians will come forward and pick it up because it's, it's so valuable, right? And I think that explains to a large extent Donald Trump's success with the immigration issue. It also explains the wall, right? I came out in 2007, was it? 2006 for the wall. But my argument was not that I thought the wall itself is really good policy. I think the wall ultimately – a real wall of China thing I think is kind of dumb and ugly. Um, but it's needed to reassure the American people that 
something tangible is being done because no one believes the politicians about any of this crap anymore. What drives me crazy, getting back to the story point, is that the immigration story, you know, as I always say, you know, my my father-in-law swam the Danube to escape the communists, came here, uh, spent a year in a refugee camp, came here, got a master's from Milton Friedman, went to Alaska to teach economics, job was gone when he got there. Ended up becoming a milkman and then buying a grocery store and then launching a chain of grocery stores. That is an awesome Horatio Alger kind of story. That should be our story. That should be the right story about about what immigration, what immigrants come here to do. And the right, including, I would argue, to a large extent, National Review, has completely lost the ability to tell a story that appeals to the normal American, including a lot of people on the right. When when Marco Rubio was speaking at the 2012 convention, telling a story about his father, you know, the same people who wanted the wall, the same people who are strict restrictionists were still weeping because they love that story. And I think narratives are really, really important in politics. And we've kind of lost the tune on that one. Um, how would your policy reclaim this ability to say we are pro-immigration, but um, we have, you know, to govern is to choose, so we have to actually have actual policies. This is a really tricky question because this is one area where I'm in tension with some of my friends um, on the right who have, um, you know, this this very kind of warm, positive, fuzzy attitude uh, about immigration. I guess one of my big picture themes in the book is that immigration is not um, one single thing. Mm-hmm. An immigrant is not a natural kind. Right. Immigration is, in fact, an incredibly differentiated phenomenon. Including and, our yeah. ad- ethnic categories, right? Hispanic covers a lot of people, many of whom hate each other. <laughs> Which is enormously diverse category. It's this pan-ethnic bureaucratic category that has taken on a life of its own right. uh, in a way that I think has actually not been very constructive. But uh, here's the really difficult, hard story. A lot of those Horatio Alger stories you were talking about, those are incredible stories. You know, think about the founder, uh, one of the co-founders of Google. You know, think about these kind of amazing figures. What you find with a lot of those incredible stories is that those were folks who came to America with a lot of advantages. Not always. Sure. But if you think about the Cuban exile community, for sure. example, you had folks who had a lot of skills and social networks. They didn't necessarily have a lot of resources. Uh, you know, it's the old Ramesh Panuru joke about how, oh, you know, my, my parents came to the country penniless but with medical degrees, right? Um, and there's this way in which people in our world, we find ourselves surrounded by, you know, super duper high achieving immigrants and oftentimes they're super duper high achieving kids but the difficulty is that america is a pretty stratified country mm-hmm. uh, we are a country in which there's not just one immigrant story there are many immigrant stories and one immigrant story is the story of folks who come to the country with limited skills and social networks who have a lot of obstacles in their way and there are some who do incredible things to overcome that but more to the point if you're an immigrant hey you know, you've chosen to move from one place to another. You've chosen that I am bettering my life. So if I find myself at the bottom of the totem pole, that's okay. Right. I did that because I don't care about the totem pole here. What I'm doing is actually lifting my family up. The really difficult, tricky thing is that the kid of that person is, in some cases, going to grow up in a really poor American neighborhood in a place where she might feel isolated right. from the American mainstream, might feel like the American dream is not there for her, particularly in our current climate. And when you look at the history of American immigration, actually, you know, folks like Ben Wattenberg, someone I read closely uh, when I was younger, 
Um, you know, a lot of that came out of mid-century America. Mm-hmm. It was folks in mid-century America who were romanticizing yeah, no, their immigrant forebears who came in the 1900s. But you and I both know that the 19 that was the age uh, of labor militancy and anarchism and much else. That was an age when immigration was benefiting natives, but also those immigrants were locked in competition with each other mm-hmm. that caused a lot of combustible pressure. So some of those restrictionists, um, and you heard this a lot from the mid-century folks, some of those restrictionists were scientific racists and just loathsome, terrible people. Some of them were believers that, hey, civil society can work. It can help these folks. They can become Americans, whether you're from Hungary or Sicily or wherever, but it's going to take some time and we have to lower the temperature a bit to make that work. And I think that there's this way in which we go for a usable history. If you are on one side of this debate, you just find like, ah, look at these awful, noxious people who wanted to shut the border before and they're doing it again versus, well, actually, there are some people who are saying, hey, this is about hubris or humility. Mm -hmm. This is about lowering the temperature for a little while so that we can knit the country together. And I think that that tendency in our debate right now is lost because in a funny way, the restrictionists in some cases, they try to lean into that hard-edged, mm-hmm. you know, kind of hardcore rhetoric rather than saying, hey, there's this other reason to be concerned about the system. Right. So, um, I mean, one of the points that the restrictionists often make, which I always found very, you know, there's the Milton Friedman point, right? That that the a robust welfare state is incompatible with large-scale immigration. And I think there's a lot of merit to that. And as a tangent to that, there was always this point that um, – I can't remember the numbers. I'm sure you have them off the top of your head. But the, the last big giant wave of immigration, people always forget like 10 million of them went home because they couldn't hack it here. And we don't – we focus on the people who survive but we don't – and thrive, but we don't focus on the people who said this just isn't for me. And you can – that – was an important part of the story that's always sort of forgotten. And now we don't have the mechanisms to, for anyone to go back on their own because we have a sort of a sticky welfare state. Jonah, this is so dead on when you're looking at that period. In a way, when you're looking at the incomes of immigrants in that era, you have this confounding factor of the fact that, as you say, if, for example, of Italian migrants, you know, kind of almost half were going yeah. back. This was a very big deal. And that had a selective dimension to it because right. the folks who kind of found it hard to gain a foothold and what have you, those were typically the ones who would go back. Um, so if you're looking at the present, here's actually another thing that really drew me to the subject. So you happen to know me as a squish. Mm-hmm. That is what I am. I am Raihan Salam, a squishy conservative who says, hey, we've got to have the earned income tax credit. We need these things because I see it as... I've changed my my <laughs> labeling of you a little bit. We're, we're going to get to that shortly when we go into the weeds on conservative stuff. But I think that the... And the squishiness is actually what kind of made me a little less squishy on the immigration question because my thinking was, okay... We've decided that if we want everyone to buy into a dynamic market economy, you've got to say, what do we do about folks who, you know, their market wages are not especially high. We're going to have to do something for them to ensure that they're bought into the system, that they're not totally relegated to the margins. But if you actually do believe that, then when you're thinking about newcomers who enter the country, you know, the libertarian answer, I've got to tell you is very coherent. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that you're going to build a wall around the welfare state, it's very coherent. But the problem is that those immigrants, they have kids, they form families. And that's where this stuff gets really tough. And so what I find most frustrating is when I deal with these folks who say, hey, you know, Kamala Harris, we're going to have uh, $2.7 trillion in tax credits. We're going to have, you know, a housing program. We're going to have this. We're going to have that. And then they're saying, also, we are going to open ourselves up to all decent, wonderful people who have a compelling story to tell about why they want opportunity. 
those things just don't add up. And my my feeling is that, look, I get the idea that maybe we want to be a little more egalitarian, a little more cohesive. There are costs to that, but maybe that makes sense. But you can't do that and say we're going to have this totally heedless approach to immigration. All right. So we should back up for a second. Um, I asked you what your book was about and you yep. a good answer, but maybe I missed it. What what specifically is your oh, yeah. proposal? What is it you want to do? Well, what I want to do is say, okay, let's have a real immigration compromise. And let's have that real immigration compromise be the kind of settlement that forms the basis for a new conversation about the kind of country we want in the future. Because I really do buy that idea that people talk about immigration, but what they're really concerned about is the future of the country. 90% of our net population growth between now and 2060 is going to come from immigrants, future immigrants and their descendants. Mm-hmm. 90% is a lot, right? And when you had these earlier eras of American history when, you know, kind of native-born Americans had really big families, I'm talking really like 1856 or nine kids in a family, yeah. not all of whom made it to adulthood, but, you know, ton of kids. In that world, you know, a, a few immigrants here and there, they're spice in the soup. You know what I mean? They're the coriander that you add on top of the chili. They're not the kind of heart of it. Whereas now you have a very different situation. Situation. So, you know, if we had open borders for babies, all of whom were being adopted into American families, some rich, some poor, <laughs> this would be totally different. I really don't think this is just about numbers mm-hmm. because those families would be inculcated in those American – you know what I'm talking about? Um, you know, if I'm a wealthy American parent, I'm, you know, giving it to my biological kids but also my 12 adopted kids from the Philippines. It's a very different kind of situation. But when you're thinking about immigration, it's really people coming, bringing their life experiences, their skills. How does that interact with the country as it is today? So that to me is the big game that I'm trying to hunt, this idea of what kind of nation do we want to be. And getting the immigration thing right, we talk about immigration because we don't know how to talk about that other big thing. So the actual proposal is saying, look, McCain-Kennedy, the Gang of Eight, were bargains between folks who wanted an amnesty and folks who wanted a big increase in temporary guest worker migration. You could say that it's, uh, you know, a bargain between, you know, this real social movement of organized labor and the kind of civil rights folks on the left and what have you. And, uh, you know, basically some conservative op-ed writers at a couple of places. You know what I mean? Club Republicans. Yeah, and, and, I, and I don't mean to – look, I mean, you know, these are serious folks. I take them seriously. I want to engage with their arguments. But as a political matter, you I mean, you remember 2006. You remember that debate. These guys, they were blindsided. How could you be blindsided by this? Yeah. You know, because – okay. You know, you don't have a huge majority of the public that wants to reduce immigration. It's not a majority, in fact. You know, you have someone more who want to reduce than increase, but the big broad middle doesn't want, you know, wants it to stay roughly the same. You know, opinion is very kind of, you know, susceptible to framing and all this other stuff, as you know. But, you know, my thinking was, look, we do know that there's not an appetite for big increases. And if you're looking at McCain-Kennedy and Gang of Eight, they would have delivered big substantial increases, not just that, but also big substantial increases in low-skill immigration. And my thinking is like, look, you can tell me all day long that every decent, reasonable, bipartisan person believes in this idea, but the fact is that a majority of the public rejected the components of it, right? So my thinking is, how do we have a compromise that actually reflects the real divides on the issue? And that's what I try to uh, to do in the book. So, but isn't part of the problem, I mean... Uh, the the I take your point about the welfare st- the Milton Freeman welfare state argument and I and I and I also I just as a clarification it seems to me that the the the, the literal rather than the figurative believers in 
open borders really are the sort of Mercatus, liber- hardcore libertarian people. What used to be the the prevailing opinion at the Wall Street Journal, you know, one of the things that just as a side rant, you know, for years – Various people at the Wall Street Journal would insinuate that National Review was racist because it was restrictionist on immigration. And I mean, I I think Steve Moore at one point went on about the nativism of National Review and all the rest. And then when Donald Trump came along, all of a sudden, Steve wrote this piece, I think, for the American Spectator. And I like Steve Moore a lot, but um, calling people who were criticizing Trump's positions on immigration, saying that we were all we were the stupid party, that we were being idiotic. And my, you know, Part of my problem is the whipsawing that we have at this moment in our in our politics where so many people have lurched to the build the wall, shithole countries, all that kind of stuff. Whereas if we had – it's sort of it's, – it's analogous to the stuff that you and Ross were doing, that Ramesh was doing, that Yuval, the reform conservatism stuff, which was trying to entice the white working class, uh, blue-collar, non-college educated people in – to the Republican fold with policies that would actually help them. And we got, or they got, you guys got just hammered by the, the sort of high priests of 1982 Reaganite purity. And then all of a sudden Trump becomes popular and they're all like, well, you have to follow him because he's winning over the white working class and the blue collar people. Maybe if we had done this in a more measured and reasonable way, um, we wouldn't win- be winning these people over with nativist rhetoric and bombast, but we would be winning them over with actual policies that are in their interests. You said it so astutely. I mean, I can't, I can't improve upon it. But it, what I will say is this. Um, I think you're right that you have some folks in the libertarian world who take this view. There is a more sophisticated version of the view about how do you reconcile that safety net welfare state question with immigration. And that argument is we need more programs to be contributory rather than non-contributory. You get benefits if you pay into the system. And, you know, I don't think that's a crazy idea. I think there's some logic to it. But I guess my view is that, look, I mean <laughs> – you know, we have a lot of non-contributory programs on this basis that we want some poor folks to lead decent lives, and it's going to be really hard for them to do that if we leave them just to kind of the state of the marketplace. And, you know, that could be a good thing. That could be a bad thing. And maybe, you know, if you actually had a truly austere welfare state, if you didn't have one, then maybe they would adapt, maybe they would leave, et cetera. That stuff may all be true. But I really do think that there are not enough folks who are true bullet biters because people want to win an argument. Mm -hmm. They emphasize one thing in one context and another thing in another context in a way that feels manifestly insincere. Mm -hmm. But the other thing I'll say is that, yeah, I mean, you have the sincere open borders folks coming from the libertarian side, but more and more, and here there's a danger of sounding over the top and I don't want to be, but it really is true that if you're looking at some of the younger folks, some of the people who identify as democratic socialists, not Bernie Sanders, who is an interesting, distinctive yeah, case. Yeah, he's but when you look at school. Exactly. And he's a guy who lived through the 70s and he yeah. lived through the, the marginalization of a kind of radical movement. But you see some of these younger folks who really do talk about immigration in the context of what they see as the depredations of American imperialism, whether or not we have the right to control our borders. So it's very funny because I both get people saying, Raihan, how dare you talk about open borders? No one actually wants them. Then the next caller on the show yeah. will say, well, Raihan, we have no right to kind of limit migration from the Philippines because of American imperialism or from Central America because of Ronald Reagan and the Sandinistas and the Contras, you know, this kind of thing. And I'm like, holy cow, I'm feeling whipsawed myself. Yeah. I, I'm glad you brought it to this because uh, I, I went off on a tangent. No, about- no, no about the reform conservatism stuff. The point I I wanted to get to was, isn't the real problem not the welfare state issue, but the 
the ideological worldview that is bound up in identity politics and, um, you know, from the high end, you know, sort of anti-colonialism BS and all the rest that rejects the model of assimilation. I mean, you're talking about bringing people in, you know, with this assimilation model and people forget, by the way, how brutal that assimilation model has been in the past sometimes. I mean, what we did to Germans in this country, German speaking people in World War II was horrendous. Uh, we basically outlawed the German language for a while. But how – aren't you sort of putting the cart in front of the horse by making this argument about how to fix the immigration problem to get us to assimilation when the real need is to fix our understanding of the need for assimilation and then a lot of great things, both on co from college campuses to immigration to our politics – will flow from that, right? It's an We need a new ideological framework. This is a really subtle issue, and it's really important. So I guess my view is, okay, the immigration system is one little discrete piece of this. Uh, it's something that we've had a really hard time getting right, but, you know, kind of it's just one component of a much larger set of issues. And my thinking is that that immigration system can make these other things harder or more difficult. So, you know, number one, my thinking is, let's try to get that right, try to get some sustainable settlement. But then the bigger fish to fry, as you suggest, is this larger question of how assimilation works. And in the book, one thing I talk about is this idea that, you know, just as I was saying that immigration is a differentiated phenomenon, assimilation is a differentiated phenomenon, too. You know, what I'll often hear is that, you know, this is ridiculous, people are learning English, of course people are learning English. One and a half billion people around the world speak English as right. a second language. It's a great language to know and understand. But it's also the case that there are some folks who've traditionally assimilated to what you might call the mainstream of American society. It's this idea that, you know, my uh, ethnic origins don't determine my fate. I'm able to kind of navigate the society. I am a full member of it. You know, I might celebrate this or that holiday, but really I feel included. Then you have folks who are assimilating into marginalized minority communities. Uh, and by the way, that minority could be a minority of color or creed or kind of what have you. But groups that feel like, hey, we are not actually full participants in this bigger, larger thing. And, and that's a big focus of mine in the book. Now, one thing that is also a big part of this that is a confusing element of this is something that you are driving at a little bit, I think, which is that, okay, when you think about that mainstream in mid-century America, it was something attractive. It was something people wanted to be a part of. And right now in our discourse, particularly in elite circles, is it obvious that the idea of being part of that big, bland American mainstream is necessarily attractive? You have new oppositional identities. Mm -hmm. And these are oppositional identities that actually have status and prestige. In some cases, I would argue they're not real. Mm -hmm. But what I mean is this idea that... There's this great study a little while ago about how people identify in ethnic terms depending on the incentives with which they're faced. So if you're in a state that has racial preferences versus one that banned them, you actually see big differences in sure. how multiracial people identify. It's just this really kind of funny phenomenon. But you know, when you say, hey, identifying in this way that assigns you to a group that has been victimized by America, victimized by American history, another friend of mine made this uh, really neat comment, talking to lots of folks around the country about their story. What are the obstacles you've overcome? And about how in the past they would have said, you know, I overcame all these obstacles only in America is my story possible. Whereas today the story is, oh, I overcame all these obstacles and now I'm doing great. And I overcame the kind of grave injustices of American life. That's a really subtle thing. I can't wave a wand. Uh, you're not going to get a filibuster-proof majority for some legislation that is going to fix that. But what we can do is have policies in place that kind of 
drain the swamp, if you will, mm-hmm. in which these things are allowed or to lance flourish. the boil or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, that, yeah. that kind of help kind of ease some of these pressures rather than exacerbates them. But I really do think that that is a kind of subtle cultural piece of this that totally shapes the landscape. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I'm not sure how subtle it is. I mean, I think one of the problems, and I know you talk about this in the book, but, you know, the the very idea that white people identify as white people is it's an analog to the idea of people identifying as Hispanic, right? I mean, I, I know Cuban Americans who, you know, in their family, they don't have a lot of fondness for Mexican Americans who don't like Colombians, you know, and all these kinds of things. They have different cultures. You know, there's some overlap in obviously cuisine, but there are really distinct cultures, right? Yeah. And this idea that this idea of, you know, to boil it down to a buzz phrase, white supremacy, right? That, that white, that, that white America is a monolith is profoundly ahistorical and poisonous. And the, the, and it, I think it feeds so much of this debate where, you know, I mean, at the turn of the century, Italian people weren't considered white people, you know, uh, Jews weren't considered white people. And one of the things I think that is so horrific about the moment that we're in is, we are more and more and more I, – I put most of the blame on the left, right? The, res, the, the response from the right is a reaction. We are encouraging people, white people, more and more to invest in their identity, invest their identity in being white. I never grew up in that. I never said the words, well, as a white American, I think – blah, 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 blah. And you're hearing that kind of formulation more and more. Jonah, um, it is amazing. I mean, what you're talking about is, yeah, I mean, it's asymmetrical multiculturalism versus symmetrical multiculturalism. Under the rules of asymmetrical multiculturalism, everyone is allowed to express their grievances and kind of think of themselves in these color-coded terms except for one group. Uh, And, you know, you could have said, well, that's because that group was the dominant majority. When that dominant majority does not feel quite so dominant anymore, then it's natural that the logic goes from asymmetrical multiculturalism to symmetrical multiculturalism right. to this idea that, you know, we are all members of this or that tribe, right? And I think that it's a really toxic dynamic. But it, there's another funny dimension. Amy Chua's book is very good oh, on yeah, some of this stuff. Absolutely. I think she's, she's very um, solid on this. Uh, so one way to think about it is, okay – I am a son of immigrants, uh, you know, kind of born and raised in New York City, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of you and I have a lot in common in that way. Um, I've encountered some racism here and there in my life. That certainly happened. Is it the defining fact of my life? No, it's not. Um, And do I feel like I've been able to navigate and be a full participant in American life? Yeah, it's true. I really feel like I, through nothing having to do with me or my virtues or what have you, just, you know, good fortune, uh, I've become a part of that mainstream. Now, if you were to say, um, you know, Raihan, you're white, mm-hmm. I, that would make me pretty uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I would not agree with you. Uh, but it's this kind of funny thing where when we talk about whiteness, in a way, we're really talking about mainstreamness. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about or bourgeoisness, well, exactly, or something like yeah. that, right, yeah. exactly. Uh, and to your point, you know, uh, actually... A lot of people feel like when you're talking about white supremacy, you're kind of effacing the fact that you have this enormous diversity among so-called white people. But then also, you know, actually that white privilege, that exists in a multiracial environment. Right. So it's kind of a funny thing when you're talking to folks who are in environments that are entirely quote-unquote white, where the real distinctions that matter are class distinctions or all sorts of other distinctions. Um, and it's this weird irony where I often think that if you really care about integration, you really care about that e pluribus unum kind of idea – 
you know, almost that rhetoric is actually driving a wedge between these white folks who feel like, well, wait a second, I'm not lording it over, you know, kind of folks who kind of don't share my skin color from people who actually might be their allies, you know, kind of second generation folks who share their ideals, share their beliefs. You know, you hear this idea that in African-American politics, it's a politics of linked fate. You know, you have a lot of conservatives who vote for Democrats because they feel like, hey, I've come to believe that the right in this country is hostile to the interests of my group. So in a weird way, this dynamic is so poisonous because you don't wind up having this cross-class coalition of these kind of bourgeois, mainstream, traditionalist folks. And, and I just kind of feel like some folks on the right, rather than leaning against that, they wind up leaning into it in a way that's problematic. But also to your point, certainly the left, you know, some folks find it... I think it's sincere, but it winds up being this kind of thing that you get this self-righteousness, you get this – it's almost – it feels profitable to kind of stoke this kind of thing too. So I think you see it on both sides. Yeah. No, it's funny. I mean, in, in all both of, sidesism, by the way, yeah, is the kind of great I, I no crime of the moment, both. but yeah. As, so, as the host of the Remnant podcast, I have no problem with both sidesism. <laughs> no, it's funny. In a lot of ways, you and I have more in common than either of us do with a – white Republican voting uh, truck driver in Arkansas, right? And yeah. one of the things, Ben Sass... <coughs> or a kind of, you know, um, Indian American immigrant, you know, kind of kind of hard scrabble. I mean, it is this funny thing. You and I have all these things in common that go beyond skin color and ethnicity. That's right. Yeah. And, and that, this is part of my problem with identity politics is that it, it, it is so fundamentally un-American in the sense that, you know, I talk about this a lot, you know, one of the greatest things the founding fathers did was get rid of titles of nobility. And I see identity politics as a new manifestation of the coalition instinct in human nature that says we're going to protect our interests and the interests of our progeny by inventing reasons to pass our privilege or our status on to our children. And so aristocracy begins as literally meaning just the rule of the best. And very quickly, the aristocrats realized that they wanted to pass on their privilege to their kids. And so they invented the idea of noble blood. Right. And so that way, in perpetuity, some people are just born by nature slaves or serfs, and some people are just born by nature noble and good. And identity politics is just a modern form of this ancient poltergeist, which says that simply by virtue of some abstract category, some people are born more worthwhile or better than other people. And it plays into victimology stuff and sort of Nietzschean resentment and all the rest, but that's the sort of core idea of it. And so this part about the hostility part, I think, is a hugely important thing. It drives me crazy how Indian Americans in 2012 were the most, I think this is right, uh, had, were the most supportive of the Democratic Party of any non-white ethnic group. And like Indian American, I got Indian Americans in my family. Ramesh Panur is one of my best friends, right? I mean, I know you're not Indian American, but for the sake of this point, mm -hmm. it's sort of the same yep. thing. Indian Americans are like the new Jews. They, they, they have all these bourgeois values. They, 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 pour guilt on their kids and overeducate them within an inch of their lives, right? They're, they're business people. They're small business. The idea that the Republican Party can't attract them, you know, the idea that we're ever going to attract blacks is insane. And it, it this, it's so like the thing I always point to is, you know, Ramesh always makes this point about how if you're a hardworking sort of conservative temperament, low tax kind of Indian American small business owner, and you go to a Republican Party meeting, and the party meeting begins with a prayer to our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, right? You may not find it bigoted, but you'll still find it to be like, this isn't necessarily a club for me. Yeah. And the GOP has, in the last 
five, ten years has sort of doubled down on this idea that it's going to be a cultural Christian white party. I got no problem with Christians, right? But, um, you know, my mom is one, my wife is one, you know, yeah. like it. But this inability to find a language, you know, the, the right has its own problems with figuring out how to talk about assimilation too. And we're kind of, we say we like assimilation, but, you know, we don't make a lot of effort to come up with a language and just simple manners that are enticing to people. Well, here's a, you know, I hear where you're coming from, and I'm trying to think my way through this a little bit. So when I think about that uh, constituency, so, you know, Indian Americans, as you say, it is the most affluent group in the country. There's this amazing book called The Other 1% that's all about how kind of unique and unusual this group is, partly because of how many folks since the 90s have come in via H-1B visas and what have you, you know, kind of really kind of unusual, extraordinary group that is shaped by immigration policy, by the way, by this kind of triple selection that you see. Um, And I think that you know, part of me thinks, well, yeah, I mean, if you're a, an Indian American, you know, you're assimilating into the upper middle class in kind of the suburbs of these big metro areas. So the really salient thing is that, yeah, I mean, those are places that have gone very, very blue, period, yeah, no, that's a, a period point. where that's kind of social point. liberalism is kind of very dominant. But I guess my thing is, well, this is a little bit of a tangent, but one thing I always find striking is that we, in various ways, our lives are affected by negative stereotypes and positive stereotypes. And if you belong to some groups in this country, just merely the way you look is going to lead to people having all kinds of assumptions about you, uh, you know, good or bad. And one funny thing for me is that, you know, uh, as you alluded to, my folks are from Bangladesh, not India. And the Bangladeshi American community is a bit different. It's a bit more working class and what have you. You know, not entirely, but, you know, it's, it's a little bit different. And, more nautical. Well, <laughs> and, well, indeed, indeed. Yeah. And one funny thing is that I've benefited from positive stereotypes. Right, you know, kind right. of people might assume all sorts of things about me when I got to... I got to go to a, you know, um, when I got to go to college, you know, people kind of assumed, oh, you must be one of those mm-hmm. folks, you know, kind of from this kind of community. And it was like, ah, oh, you know, okay. I mean, eh, you know, um, you know, we all have these more complicated stories and it's this kind of funny thing that is frustrating for a lot of folks. And, and I kind of feel that frustration, but to this kind of political point, I guess my feeling is, and this is kind of getting into kind of party politics, but what I see is American politics as the situation where the Democratic Party has become a barbell party. Mm-hmm. It is a party with a lot of kind of educated upper middle income folks for whom social liberalism, uh, progressivism is practically their religion, as mm-hmm. many of them are pretty secular. Then you have folks who vote on the base of linked fate. They feel like I belong to this excluded group. And so I'm going to ally with the Democratic Party because they're going to defend my interests. Then the Republican Party has become more and more the party of this broad middle largely white. Mm -hmm. And I guess my theory of American politics is if you're going to get some the kind of settlement that I want to see in a variety of different areas, in a way, you want that broad middle to ally itself with some of those working class Latinos, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, and what have you. Um, And in a way, they're going to be in tension with those folks for whom social progressivism is a religion. That's a good point. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean... uh, So so that means that you're going to have a party where, yeah, you're going to have just as you had the the neoconservatives, many of whom were folks who were themselves not very far removed from immigrant origins, uh, a lot of folks who were of Jewish origin, uh, but you know they were a minority. Mm-hmm. But they were the ones who kind of said, "Look, you know, we identify with this thing." In a way, you know, 
they weren't always populists themselves, but they thought, how do we take this kind of conservative, populist, traditionalist thing, and how do we kind of help shape it to something that is going to, you know, kind of help make the country a better place? And I think that with some of these, you know, kind of more affluent minority groups and what have you, I see a similar kind of cleavage. You're going to have some folks who are really going to double down on their identification with social progressivism. And then I think you're going to have some folks who think, yeah, look, my cultural vision of the country is of this kind of melting pot mainstream idea rather than the kind of Randolph-born, Horace Callan, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of cultural pluralist idea that is in some ways kind of hostile to the idea of this, you know, kind of burgeoning, expanding mainstream. So I think that that's kind of a, a subtlety there. Okay. We should talk for a moment about Podium, um, our sponsor this week. So we have a new sponsor this week, Podium. Podium is a breakthrough way for businesses to get better reviews from customers, to stay in touch with customers. I would love to figure out a way we could do this with the Remnant podcast, but we're stuck with begging for reviews on places like iTunes, which please keep doing because, you know, I, the, I'm hearing footsteps from the McCarthy Report and the editors and even that weird commentary podcast thing. Podium is a, the next level way for people to stay in t- for businesses to stay in touch with their customers to get reviews to get better ratings in their local communities and it is a fascinating thing i encourage you uh, to visit their website 83% of happy customers are willing to leave a review but only 23% actually do Podium lets you take control of your online reputation by giving your customers a voice, not just the handful of angry ones who want to shout or complain about something. Everybody's going to get a negative review. The trick for a good business, a successful business, particularly these days online, is to get to capture more of the positive experiences that often don't get captured by other websites and other and other ratings for services. Podium has this instant messaging way where you can message the customer instantly to have a review and it translates it into online reviews for your business. Podium users see a 6% increase in revenue just from reviews. So, reviews matter. Tell me about it. The way you show up online determines who shows up at your door. Go to podium.com slash dingo for 10% off your monthly subscription. Become the obvious choice online. Go to podium.com slash dingo to get started and save. Okay, so I want to switch gears a little bit. So you have, so you said earlier that I consider you a squish. Um, <laughs> and um, I, 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 um, I, I, I actually don't. You know, obviously, my views about a lot of these things have kind of evolved. Um, I was never one of the reform conservative guys, but I am so profoundly less hostile to it than I once was. And um, in fact, I'm in favor of it in retrospect. And so I have it's sort of like my point about immigration policy. I just want to have one. And I think there are lots of perfectly acceptable ones. I, I, you know, the Pat Buchanan idea of a timeout doesn't bother me either anymore. But when I listen to you on that 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 niche podcast that you do sometimes, I I will I will just be blunt. I usually side with Charlie against you in most of these debates, <laughs> and um, that's Charlie Cook for you guys out there, um, or as we call him, British Shaggy, and um, uh, because you've now put that image in my head, I'm going to go away. But. Um, um, the when I hear you sometimes, you come across as – you're a person of the right for sure, but you come across awfully Bismarckian. 
Um, and, you know, Bismarck was a huge influence on the American progressives. He practiced what was called top-down socialism, right? It was this idea, sort of the, um, he was Lee Kuan Yew before Lee Kuan Yew came along, right? Conservative liberal fascism. You might yeah, say. it's something like that. <laughs> and um, the, um, you're, you, in the book, you praise the New Deal and how it does these kinds of things. You, you're a champion of what you, you and others call one nation politics and all of that. And, um, that just gets my spider sense tingling. Oh, yeah. And, um, uh, because I think, you know, we always love to apply Hayek to the left's stuff, right? Um, but we rarely want to apply it to our own side. And I am a, I am extremely, um, skeptical about the the efficiency of planning, even when I like the plan quite a bit, right? <laughs> um, it's much easier to invoke Hayek and use Hayek as a cudgel against the left when you don't like their plan, you know, Medicaid for all or single-payer health care, and then you can break out your knowledge problem and all that kind of stuff. But when you have it coming out on the right about how we're going to turn all the knobs in just a certain perfect way to get, as you put it on that podcast for a few times about how to realign our supply chains and in trade and whatnot. Um, that makes me very nervous. So I want to give you a chance to respond to that. And also just sort of what, what are there any sort of guiding principles on the philosophical level that, that you adhere to, or are you merely a sort of right-wing pragmatist? Wow. Right-wing pragmatist is actually a pretty great way to put it. So, you know, you've seen the social science that talks about how, you know, you just have a good-sized chunk of the population. Some folks will say it's, you know, 35 40% of folks, you know, people who talk about this group unfavorably will call them right-wing authoritarians. Others will call them order-seeking, stability-seeking people. But I've got to tell you, um, you know, it's a big chunk of the population. It never made sense to me to anathematize that chunk of the population, partly because, look, I kind of identify with it in some ways. When I think about this kind of lower middle class, working class politics of, you know, hey, wait a second, you know, we are traditionalists by instinct. We're not necessarily super articulate about this, but, you know, we do have this feeling that, hey, you know, we want a system, an immigration system in the national interest. We want it to be controlled. You know, those attitudes, uh, that desire for control, um, it's very different from the kind of hunger for dynamism that kind of draws a lot of people to the kind of Hayekian sensibility to Mm -hmm. the kind of, you know, market, liberal, conservative, you know, kind of idea. And um, I guess I think of myself as someone who kind of comes from that place, um, that, place, that kind of instinctive, kind of populist, traditionalist place where I have benefited enormously. I've been restrained by that kind of liberal, that classical liberal tradition. Um, And I see this as a coalition where uh, I definitely don't want my instincts to run untrammeled, but rather um, I think the right is better when the right is leavened with um, that compassion and humanity of the religiously observant Mm -hmm. uh, and also by that kind of classical liberal component. But classical liberalism on its own, in my view, that has always been a remnant. It's always Mm -hmm. been an elite project. And when it aspires to be more than that, it becomes technocracy Mm -hmm. and it elicits a backlash. So I guess for me, the right makes sense as this kind of healthy kind of stew of these different tendencies. And one thing that I worry about kind of a little separately, is that when you see kind of religious observance fading in some ways, it's having uh, it's having really noxious effects on the right. And then when you see that classical liberal tendency self-marginalize, 
Uh, you know, it's funny. I think of Tyler Cowen as someone I've always just really admired. He's, you know, he's a friend. He's someone I, I really appreciate. And I think that he gets that, too, the idea that uh, just the way that you do, too, just that classical liberalism, it's never going to be the creed of an overwhelming majority. Sure. America is unique in that it's been a part of our DNA to our great benefit. Um, but you know, this idea that let's take that classical liberal tradition and marry it to social progressivism, you know, it's interesting for this kind of different kind of crusading thing. Um, you know, I find that to be a misbegotten project, whereas the project I have in mind is one that says, look, we are tragic beasts, you know, kind of we uh, are fallen animals, you know, what I mean? this is just kind of our nature. Um, and we are not going to make a perfect world. What we can do is work towards a more decent world. Um, and that's where it comes from for me, this kind of tragic sensibility. Mm -hmm. And I think that that really does bind me to a lot of other folks on the right. It doesn't bind me to libertarians I think of as pretty utopian, mm -hmm. pretty radical. And I, when I say radical, I don't say that derisively. I think that it's a self-conscious thing. Sure, it's kind of like sure. we are self-consciously radical. And it's that radicalism that is the opposite pole for me. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I get that. So you know, and I, look, I don't think there was a single thing you just said that I disagree with philosophically. My standard line, which I wrote about in my first book, is that conser American conservatism is about more than classical liberalism, but an American conservatism that doesn't seek to conserve classical liberalism is not one that I want to be part of, right? It, it is an important component of of the conservative project in America, which is one of the reasons why, you know, Whitaker Chambers read Ayn Rand out of the movement, right? Um, I think he was a little unfair with the whole gas chamber go thing, but that's a different story. My problem with my, perce my perception, yeah. which I, I'm totally open to correction, with your approach is that it has the – I'll put this crudely to elicit a, a passionate response. <laughs> um, it has the, the stench of right-wing Tom Friedmanism. Oh, and the technocratic conceit. Yep. Yeah, and also – but also – Centralization, and this gets to our conversation uh, where I wanted to go anyway about my problem with one nation politics. Yep. So often, your approach strikes me as one of federal policy. Now, on immigration, I agree with you almost entirely. The federal government is the thing that sets immigration policy, so it has to come from the federal government, right? But, um, but even there, the solutions to our immigration problem are going to be are going to be worked out much closer to the ground, right? In real communities and how they deal with actual human beings with faces and names and customs and expectations. It's not going to be set from Washington. And so, you know, I know I'm on this kick and I bring it up all the time on yep. the podcast, but one of the things I really think is the solution to so many of our problems is to stop looking to Washington and to this, the state to solve in a granular way so many of these problems. Again, immigration is an exception. Yep. And so my problem with one nation politics or nationalism, as Rich talks about and all the rest, and I want to stipulate, I think, even though I disagree with Rich on a lot of this stuff, I know for a fact he's coming from a good place. He's well-intentioned. He doesn't see a difference between nationalism and patriotism the way I do. And so part of our disagreements are almost terminological. That said, the problem with nationalism is that the second you start, there are a couple of them. One is you know, the way Donald Trump talks about nationalism, he really is only talking about, you know, his people, that they're representative of the real American. They're the best people, as he likes to say. And 
that by definition is divisive, right? And particularly in an era of negative polarization, you are going to scare away, you know, that you're talking about before about have linked fate. Well, if I were a sincere nationalist like Rich's or like you are, I would be full of dread to hear Donald Trump take up the nationalist mantle as the, as the label that he wants. And then the, the second problem is when you make an argument about nationalism, there is only one institution in the entire country that can claim to represent the entire country. We don't have a state church. We don't have any other institutions. It's just the government in Washington. And as a matter of fact, there's only one federal official who is elected by the entire country. And so we are basically investing in a single person this almost mystical quality of being the spokesman for the Volksgemeinschaft. And that of necessarily will be centralizing. It will also, in this climate, be polarizing. And it will also lead to the federal government claiming that it, the head of the federal government claiming that his policies are um, more patriotic because they're done in the name of the whole nation. And I don't like any of that. Yeah. I mean, we could be even more blunt about this, the kind of conceit that the president is the father or mother of the nation, which is uh, utterly terrifying. Um, look, I think that you've really hit upon some of the central tensions. Uh, you're right that I find the idea of a unifying nationalism as an incredibly kind of healthy, valuable idea. It's something that I do identify with. And you're right that in some cases, I believe that, you know, the federal government is going to be the agent. You know, one of the difficulties of our moment, and it's partly a product of the media climate and what have you, is that Americans, um, you know, they understand reasonably well national party heuristics, what the Republican or the Democrat means at the national level. And then they just basically vote that way at every other level, despite the fact that the issue set is very, very different. Right. There's been this corrosive nationalization of our politics. Um, and just to give you a really boring answer to this kind of structural challenge before getting to the kind of deeper question, I'll just say that you know, I'm a big believer in the old settlement of layer cake rather than marble cake federalism, in which the federal government really owns some areas, preempts state and local action. By the way, you have some progressives who are really resisting this idea now. They actually like the idea of dissenting by governing and kind of uh, creating some of these fractures from, from below. Um, and then having state and local governments really be exclusively responsible for some other domains. Just as a public policy matter, mm -hmm. I think that that makes a lot of sense. But what you're raising is this kind of much deeper question. I mean, you know, one way to put it, and I oftentimes wrestle with myself about this, think, you know, what is the way that I would – what is the vulnerability as I see it in my position? And it absolutely is this idea of like central planning the culture, uh, particularly in a moment when the media is so fragmented. When you had an oligopoly, when you had kind of three TV networks right. and kind of like, you know, one newspaper in every big metro, something like that, you know, you know that class of people could determine, you know, what is the public conversation like. That is simply not possible right now. And that introduces all kinds of challenges for a free society, uh, the way that certain dangerous ideas uh, have this kind of virality that they wouldn't have otherwise. You know, I guess my feeling is that my nationalism has a big cultural component. It relates to this idea of fellow feeling, solidarity, one of those slippery words that yeah. I know that, you know, kind of we bring up a lot. But just this idea that being part of a society like ours right now at a time when over the coming decades, I think we're going to face a lot of challenges. I don't know how automation is going to unfold. I don't know how the next wave of offshoring is going to unfold. I don't know how the changing ethnocultural composition of our society will unfold. I don't know. But what I do think is that there's this weird paradox. 
Some societies that have always felt vulnerable, think about Denmark or Switzerland, let's say, they weirdly come up with better ways to broker their internal disputes Mm -hmm. than societies that don't feel threatened. So in Cold War America, this was in some ways, you know, conservatives like love, we love the 50s. But as you're getting at, like that was a period of external threat and coercion and conformity. And there are a lot of downsides to that. You can't get around that. You know, right now, I do wonder, I actually do feel like we're entering this moment where we don't represent the kind of we're not going to represent the biggest chunk of the global economy forever. We're not going to be Denmark or Switzerland, but we are not going to bestride the world like a colossus in the same ways. So that society, what does it mean to go from being an empire to being a different kind of state that can be successful and flourishing, but it has to be a society, to my mind, that is better at dealing with these bargains internally, better at striking these cross-class compromises, better at turning the temperature down on some of our cleavages, because otherwise... This is the whole Russia thing, Jonah. This is this idea that Mike Pence raises. You know, you have other countries that are exploiting our divisions because literally there are some Americans who hate members of the other party more than they hate Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredible Those idiots fact. with the I'd rather be a Russian than a Democrat t-shirts, right? I mean, that's a really weird thing for a nationalist to wear. <laughs> I mean, honestly, you know, it is a kind of like silly and ridiculous thing. But the thing is that, man, when you think about the sweep of history – the idea that we are not an agent, we're never going to be a single agent, but, you know, as a state, but we become this arena in which we're at each other's throats. Um, that is the kind of – that's my source of existential dread. And I don't want pure conform. I don't want conformity. I don't want us to all kind of, you know, have sameness. I want us to be a society that prizes individuality and what have you. But my fear is that that requires this healthy balance. And all of the kind of technological forces, the way that our media works, it's all pushing towards this kind of fragmentation. And, you know, I don't I don't want it to be just the national government. I want it to be other institutions in our society that knit us together. Uh, but, you know, you're right to say, you know, to a nationalist, the question is put up or shut up. What are those things? Um, well, I, that's I, part of what, you know, that's part of what we're trying to do, right, by trying to make these arguments. Yeah, so I, I get all of that. And look, I, I think it would be better if all Americans had a greater sense of patriotism and fellow feeling for their fellow Americans and we had a more of a monoculture. Not I don't want a monoculture, but more of one, moved closer to one than what we have now. In certain ways. In other ways, I want the opposite of that. But you, you actually want less conformity, particularly less intellectual conformity. Right. But what I'm what, – and I, you said something about prizing individuals. I mean, look, I, I'm, a, I'm a Lockean in that sense that I think the individual is sovereign and all the rest. But we don't live – we are we are not isolated. No, no man is an island. I, I believe that. Um, one of the things that Ben Sass talks about, which I like a lot, is that I want more – Americans, white, black, whatever, to think of themselves as members of more meaningful minorities. And, you know, the this country was founded on the idea that pretty much everybody was a member of a minority. You had these different churches, you had these different communities, you had these different ethnicities. And the so for me, the the institutions that create a sense of patriotism have to come from the ground up. We're born into families, we're born into specific communities. And so my question for you is not necessarily I think all the things that you want sound good to me, right? Or at least perfectly defensible. 
what are the mechanisms by which you are going to achieve this this wonderful one nation politics thing? Well, one thing to build on your point, in a weird way, we have this society right now uh, where there's been this utter collapse of those civic associations, the idea of America as a nation of presidents, meaning, you know, a place where you have lots of people who are in places of honor in these kind of, you know, small, more meaningful minorities, as you describe them. And you know, there's a world in which that sorta kinda lives on, and there's a, another world in which it's totally collapsed. It's almost like, and this is the whole classic Charles Murray idea. You've certainly written about this, uh, the idea that it's almost like a West Germany, East Germany thing, yeah. where if you look at America above about the 35th or 40th percentile, this country is fabulously rich, but more than rich, it's a country where people are kind of embedded in lots of kind of different private, you know, voluntary organizations. Not as much as maybe I'd like them to be, and there's, you know, that's kind of decayed. There is a kind of retreat into a narrow private life. But then you've got one another group of people where it's like, you know, gosh, I mean, um, it is much more atomized. Uh, you know, you do have, you just don't have the same kind of associational life. And it's not even so much a matter of income as it is this matter of the kind of fraying of those ties. And partly it's complicated. You know, was it because government stepped in and that those other kind of capacities started to fray? I do think that's part of the case. So when I think about these things in policy terms, I think, you know, you're not going to actually legislate that. What you can do is provide some kind of decent basis and then do the folks who are doing the work of civil society, you know, kind of give them some kind of platform, some kind of kind of solid thing they can rest on. Because, you know, fundamentally, what we're going to do is all we can do is kind of tweak these institutions and just have them not exacerbate the problems, have them actually form this kind of basis. You know, think about the settlement houses. And when I was talking about, you know, the immigration debates in the 1900s, it's like, yeah, I mean, there were kind of awful, terrible, scientific racists and other goons. But there are other people who are the ones who are building the settlement houses. Mm -hmm. There are the people who are actually saying, like, we're going to do the work of this thing called integration. Mm -hmm. We're actually going to do that actively. You know, John the, Dewey in kindergarten. The tragedy in Pittsburgh, it's kind of so fascinating, the Hebrew Im Immigrant Aid Society. You know, this was a group, it was working with new arrivals from places where it they didn't have experience of urban life and what have you and actually kind of knitting these communities together. And you think about how much good they did. And I just think to myself, gosh, you know, you have these people who do have just enough, you know, upper middle income folks, and they channel all of their energies into partisan politics rather than thinking about, well, what do we do to knit the society back together? And I just kind of want to find you know, how do we form a base for that? And that's going to do these kind of some big picture policies that kind of, you know, kind of stop digging. Mm -hmm. You know, you do that. But then the other stuff is going to have to be how do we respond on a kind of civic level to these needs? So philosophically, yeah. do you have a problem with the idea of essentially inverting the pyramid of government in America? Like I always say, at the federal level, I'm wildly libertarian, right? There are only a handful of things that the federal government should be doing. But as you move down the chain of society and you start dealing with actual people, I become much more communitarian. Or and in the family, you know, I mean, I'm a big. You want to impose Sharia law in Roslyn? Uh, <laughs> <Hell>. <laughs> no, well, no, but I, yeah, we, you know, I, I don't want to get in trouble with Andy McCarthy. But <laughs> if you kept it in Roslyn, okay, fine. You know, it really wouldn't bother me. I, I you know, I back in the old days, you know, I, I was a. Before the internet, I was very persuaded by Irving Kristol's stuff on censorship. If Boston wanted to ban a book, fine. The federal government should be kind of silent about that kind of stuff. 
And so I, at least as a philosophical matter, I mean, the practicalities are very different, but as a philosophical matter, I would have no problem with the bulk of people's tax dollars going to the communities that they live in. And then the, 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 the tribute that we pay to Washington is to pay for a military to protect the borders. Uh, you know, the, the post office is in the constitution, yep. so we got to keep that. But basically beyond that, let a thousand flowers bloom and let various communities, you can't, you have to protect and you can't have Jim Crow and you can't have slavery. You know, we fought a couple of wars. We fought a war about that. We amended the constitution. But beyond that, let people live the way they want to live. What is your problem with that? You know, we are definitely within the world of conservatives who are influenced by, you know, the classical liberal tradition. You and I definitely aren't are on opposite sides of the spectrum on this one. And, yes. and, and you kind of you're right to pick up on that. Um, I guess the way that I see it, different people come to their politics for different reasons. And I talked to you before about, you know, kind of that order seeking attribute I have. But there's another thing, too. Um, when you think about the early days of National Review and movement conservatism, there were those folks who were the cold warriors. Mm -hmm. you know? Oh, sure. And I, and those are the folks in a way that I identify with. Because oh, you're I totally guess, a Burnham guy. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and it's this kind of primat dar awesome politic kind of thing. The idea that, you know, in a way, my, the the big game that I'm hunting in a way is like thinking about, you know, what do we do in a world um, with Chinese power? What do we do in a world where we are not going to, you know, kind of have the kind of, you know, share of GDP we did in 1945? You know, what do you do about that? And then a lot of other things. There's a danger to this. There's kind of like me wearing one of those Wilhelmine helmets. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I, you, you don't want that. I wasn't kidding but, about no, the Bismarck thing. No, no, no. <laughs> look, 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 look. You definitely were onto something there. Uh, but, you know, that's why I think Hey, look, on a certain level, if you have a lot of kids who, uh, you know, are not great at reading, writing, and arithmetic, you know, that's something that actually does have, you know, this sounds like such a cheap thing to say, but I, I do, I am one of those guys who thinks that that has national security consequences. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? And I know that that is exactly where the liberal fascist gestalt, you know, that's the danger of it. So that's why it's something that I try to restrain, but I really do think that in a world of great powers and great power rivalry, in a kind of world where international politics is fundamentally anarchic, you want to make it more rule bound, but that's that's why I care so much about American power and American strength, because I think that, you know, we're going to be the best hegemon on offer. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? The others are going to be a lot worse than us. And, you know, how do you strike that balance? But, you know, when it comes to the national government, I mean, I'm firmly one of those, you know, I wrote a piece some years ago that absolutely incited and drove people crazy, but it was saying, you know, why I'm still a neocon. And I meant it in this very narrow sense of, I'm still someone who believes that we need an awfully big military, that it's going to be the platform, you know. Germany is not going to spend as much as us because we're the ones who are the public goods provider. And then there are some other things that flow from that too in terms of what becomes a national imperative in that kind of a dangerous world. But I also think that I'm someone who should have at least one Bismarckian hand tied behind my back mm -hmm. <laughs> because, you know, you – and that's why I'm glad to be part of a movement, part of a coalition where, you know, kind of that's going to be part of it. But if it ever became all Raihans, you know, kind of, uh, you know, lock up your kids, uh, you know, because I'm coming for them. No, no but, we, but yeah, <laughs> but we'd have fantastic highways. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, this is so I mean, it's weird. I mean, I'm I'm talking myself into a pretty paleocon subsidiarity kind of position. And and um, so your your basic. If I'm hearing you right, the the hamster in the Rube Goldberg machine driving your public policy approach is what um, what can we do to make us um, I, 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 it'd be unfair to say the garrison state, but what we can do 
to um, make sure that we stay a hegemon. And what could we do to make us, because I'm not sure if that's in the cards, what can we do that makes us more robust and resilient in the face of external threats and change? That's what I'm concerned about while still preserving what is best in our constitutional ideals. That is definitely my fear. Now, we were talking before about those folks who say, you know, I'd rather be a Russian than a Democrat. And, you know, gosh, imagine what happens when you graft skin color on top of that. Mm -hmm. You know, when class and ethnicity, that becomes fused into one thing, you know, kind of and by the way, that's just a nightmare in itself. But then when you add on top of that, the idea of states that do not have our best interests in mind. In fact, I actually think we're living in that world right now, in a way. That to me is uh, just such a kind of awful outcome. And, you know, part of it means, you know, kind of one of the reasons why you had early modern states in Europe that became more kind of liberal was because that was the way to become rich. And that was the way to kind of become powerful and to kind of successfully contend with other states. So I absolutely believe, even just on instrumental grounds, that market freedom is incredibly important. But yeah, I mean, you know, kind of at the end of the day, um, you know, I just really do think that, you know, we live in a dangerous world, and making ourselves capable of, um you know, navigating that world successfully without winding up at each other's throats is really important to me. Yeah. So it's interesting because I'm just completely on a different page than you on this stuff. I, um, you know, I don't want to become Fortress America. I'm certainly not an isolationist. I am for a robust foreign policy, probably less, it's definitely less robust than I was, say, 10, 15 years ago. But I want to keep the sea lanes open. I want to still be the most powerful country in the world and all the rest. But I also, these days, and I don't want to sound too much like Patrick Deneen, but I also want people to have happy and fulfilling lives. And it seems to me that the the bulk of the evidence from social science, and you follow stuff more closely than I do, leads me to think about what you do to actually improve the sense of solidarity and fellow feeling that we both think is important at a much lower level. You know, there's Dunbar's number, right? We only can really know about 150 to 200 people, right? No one wakes up in the morning in the United States of America. They wake up in Cleveland or in Shaker Heights or wherever, right? Or Cincinnati. Um, I'm saying all this just to trigger Jack over there, who's an Ohio jingoist. <laughs> um, but, and, you know, we are first and foremost members of families. And I am much more worried about the threat to the family in the United States and the threat to civil society and local community and the threat to organized religion than I am concerned with the threat from China. And to to yoke everything about how we should have our social organization or our political organization to how best to deal with foreign threats over the next 50 years, you know, we're going to be okay. Switzerland hasn't been invaded for 800 years. They have a much better sense of social solidarity, even though they are a vastly more federalist, localist way of organizing society. And when we founded America, we viewed them as a sister republic and borrowed a lot of the same mechanisms that they did. And I think they have a higher quality of life, not just economically, but spiritually, socially, you know, uh, communitarianly, whatever, than we do in America. And that's the stuff I care about more these days. I guess um, if you talk to me about family life and what have you and what are the things we can do to put it on a more, more sound footing, I imagine you and I, you know, there'd be a fair bit of agreement. But, you know, I've got to say, when I think about our system 
the nature of our constitutional order, one thing that's so funny and frustrating and if not infuriating is the way that people are trying to graft parliamentary politics onto a system that was not built for parliamentary oh, politics. I agree with that the whole idea is that we are meant to have federal legislation when you have a broad, deep consensus. That's the whole point of electing senators in these tranches of, you know, kind of one third, one third, one third, right. you know, kind of, you know, having these, you know, and you were kind of talking about, you know, this idea of the plebiscitary presidency. You know, that's why we have the electoral college. We right. do not want the plebiscitary presidency. So I think there are all sorts of ways in which our system has been deformed and deranged by this kind of capital P progressive project. Uh, you know, I, I definitely um, I'm very sympathetic to you there. But I guess when I think about um, the future, yeah, it's certainly true that when I think about the state and the federal government, a lot of it is coming from this kind of feelings about external threat. When it comes to family life, I guess I kind of feel like, you know, what you want is state and local governments making these communities more affordable. You want a shift in kind of social and cultural norms so we make family formation a kind of more of a realistic possibility for folks. One thing I kind of think about a lot is the way that when you have more people who go for more of life, unmarried and childless and what have you – they're way more status conscious mm -hmm. and they become way more vulnerable mm -hmm. to kind of a cultural meme. Okay, I need to do that to be a high status, high prestige person. And so I kind of often think that in a way, getting the family right will fix a lot of what's toxic about our culture more broadly. So that's kind of a belief of mine. I'm, but, with, I'm with Yuval on this stuff. Yeah. You don't, I, a nation of Julia's is going to have a very strong central state and very little civil, civil society. Exactly, exactly, because you hollow out everything in between. So I don't think that we're that far apart on that question uh, you know, just this this idea of the primacy of family life and what have you. But it really is true. And you've got my number when you say that, you know, kind of my thinking about the state is more about how I want to preserve the room for that kind of internal, uh, that kind of freedom and for civil society and what have you. But I do think that, you know, kind of I think about that in terms of strength, um, a language that definitely has downsides to it. But um, but yeah, I, I guess I just seeing how what a glass jaw we as a society seem to have in a climate when, like, actually the external threats are pretty manageable. Mm -hmm. You know, I wrote this book about immigration, and, and one thing about it is that, you know, a lot of people say, okay, you know, you've kind of laid out these really kind of serious tensions, serious problems, but your prescriptions are, in a way, kind of modest. Mm -hmm. and, and my answer is that, yeah, I actually think that if we just took a breath and stepped back and said, hey, we just need some kind of decent settlement. Let's not try to constantly profit at one another's expense by dunking on one another and actually just kind of by taking us, you know, kind of into our corners. It actually wouldn't take that much to get us to a much healthier place where civil society can do its work. But I mean, it's just to kind of be to be heard above the din you know, to kind of get people to do that is really, really hard. You know, I, I kind of wrote this book partly because I was very cognizant of the fact that people are going to try to caricature you. They're going to try to demonize you because if you're trying to speak to more than one audience, as you did in your book, um, you know, people want to make that impossible. Yeah. And I just kind of thought that was the thing that was really hard. That was the thing that was kind of anxiety producing. Mm -hmm. Like, how do I do this in a way that speaks to, you know, Fox and Vox? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I don't know. You know, I did my best. But it was partly because that was my way of living this ideal, this mm -hmm. ideal of like, how do we have a more balanced and a harmonious society? And it's going to be personal. It's yeah. going to be in your family, in your neighborhood. And for me, as someone who writes for a living, it's going to be in how I write and communicate. Yeah. Now, I mean, if you told me 10 years ago that I would be 
going through a process of Rihonization, um, I would have slapped you. But um, <laughs> but it's true. I mean, that's one of the things I try to do in my book was is model the behavior I think is so lacking on the right and the left these days, which is actually make an argument trying to persuade people who disagree with me in good faith. But to get back to this point, I would just posit that if even from your lodestar of being prepared on national security grounds for a dangerous world, which I'm all in favor of being prepared for a dangerous world and all that, the reason why, and you've written and talked a lot about this, I've written a lot about this, one of the reasons why our partisan affiliation is serving as essentially a secular religion these days is precisely because people aren't finding meaning closer to home where they traditionally would, where they would get it from their community, from their family, from their um, their religions, from uh, all the Burkean little platoons. And so because we crave meaning and belonging, we are tribal creatures, we are now looking to Washington and to partisan politics and to national politics for our our meaning. And that, I would argue, is precisely why the immigration debate is so screwed up. Because we're talking about in an era where everybody, where both the left and the right are essentially talking about one nation politics, but they have very different vis- visions of what the whole nation should be. And imposing their vision. And imposing it on the other side, right? And so it becomes zero sum. If instead people were having knockdown, drag out fights about what Austin should be, first of all, you would contain the problems. You still have which books to ban in Boston. Or which books to ban in Boston. And so my point is, is that if you had healthier civil society, had healthier institutions, healthier families, you would, first of all, produce better citizens and you would produce better politics, which I would argue would in the long run be better for assimilation. It would also be better for our national security needs. Right now, we're not making a lot of patriots. And the way historically we've made patriots is starting in the family and then in our local communities and then... The whole doctrine, which you were talking about referencing earlier, of this idea that the founding fathers had, which is that, you know, their their view was that, you know, in essentials, unity, and everything else, diversity, I think we would be better prepared, be more anti-fragile if we had a more diverse and variegated portfolio of communities in this country that were providing a sense of belonging and meaning to people than trying to draw, then leaning into this centralization and nationalization of our politics. Yeah. I mean, you caught me in a, in a funny place because, um, you know, as I mentioned before, I'm a big believer in the uh, layer cake idea, right. you know, meaning that I really do believe that having state governments that kind of focus on their core competencies, that focus on education and roads and, and what have you, I think that that would have, uh, you know, that would have very salutary consequences because those are things that, that really do matter to people. Whereas the federal government, but the thing is that in terms of size, ultimately, I think that you have a national labor market and it makes mm-hmm. sense that you're going to have a kind of safety net that's going to be national in scope. But, you know, you do have those state and local governments, less of this kind of cooperative federalism garbage and kind of more where actually you're really meaningfully, you know, kind of giving them the fiscal capacity to do things, but also just giving them the, the scope to really pursue tailored solutions. But yeah, I mean, the nationalization of our politics mean that you instead have a blue model and a red model, and that kind of gets propagated through that level of government. And I do think that that is not where I 
want to go. And I do think that there are institutional tweaks we could pursue that would maybe move us further in that direction. But I'm with you. The idea that, you know, you want to have some revival of localism. The problem is that, you know, that localism, it really comes from family life. Like when you're a country that just has so few folks who have kids Mm -hmm, in the -hmm. the household, you know, when you have a lot of single people, when you have a lot of, by the way, also just kind of a much older society, and that's, you know, kind of a, a much larger issue to discuss. But, you know, in a way, children are the great equalizers. They're the ones who kind of they lure us out of our man caves where we have kind of Hulu and Netflix and HBO now. You know what I mean? They're the ones who kind of like bring us into the world and you kind of encounter this different universe of people. And when you don't have them um, – so it's this kind of very weird thing. I mean, that is always the motivating thing. And it's also so important for immigration policy, because this idea that I am invested in my posterity, I become a different citizen of my community. Like, you know, I used to live in the West Village. And when I was living there, you know, kind of in, in my early 30s, when I was living there, it was like, basically, I was living in a shopping mall, you mm-hmm. know, kind of I, you know, kind of was earning enough that I could eat out, you know, kind of a decent amount, you know, what have you. But now, you know, I'm about to have a baby. And you know, thank you. And, and just my life, it just becomes different, because you just kind of have I have to deal with the kind of crazy people in Park Slope or, you know, what you know, what I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. it just becomes a different thing. And then you have to deal with them, not as crazy people because they disagree with you politically, but as people who are you work with them, you collaborate with them. They're a part of your life. And I do think that that's kind of a an important part of this larger landscape. And with the immigration thing, too, similarly, you know, when you fear that your posterity is not connected to the future of the country when you yeah, feel like yeah. you don't have that posterity. That, I think, is a big cultural driver. Now, one person could say, well, it's simply racist. You know, you just kind of don't like young brown people. But another way to put it is that, well, gosh, you've lost touch with the younger generation because you're not viscerally connected uh, with it through a child or a grandchild. And that doesn't make anyone a bad person. It's a natural thing that any of us would do. So anyway, I, I kind of think that that's, that's a big part of this. Story. Now, I, I think Ramesh first said this to me or – I've been saying it for so long. Maybe I just invented it myself. I can't remember. But libertarianism is the single greatest philosophy ever invented. It just has two weaknesses, the existence of children and foreign policy. And (laughs) without those two things, there's very few moral arguments against libertarianism. And I think that for me, I mean, that's kind of how I frame the book. You know, in a funny way, it all goes back to the Edmund Burke line about society is a compact between the living, the dead, and the unborn. The way that we think about immigration is so often, okay, this is a sympathetic person who's trying to kind of change their life. And I think that's obviously incredibly morally powerful, to your point about libertarianism being really morally powerful. But then when you think about, well, what does it mean for that person to form a family? Uh, What is that going to mean given all sorts of other ways our society has changed? You know, I'm not saying that that is dispositive. That means that this policy is right and that policy is wrong. But when you lose sight of that, uh, you're losing sight of something really important. And that's kind of how I try to think about every policy domain. You know, it's not just, okay, have I put a Band-Aid on this immediate thing and I've now felt good about myself and I'm patting myself on the back. What are going to be the kind of generational consequences? Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, my favorite line from, well, not my favorite line, but one of the lines I love from Chesterton is tradition is democracy for the dead. <laughs> you know, I mean, like we owe something to the nature, nature of this country to keep to, a sense of gratitude of keeping it where it's going. Uh, Jack is starting to fume. The, uh, <laughs> the macabre rictus is starting to form on his face because we're going long. So, Ryan, I could do this all day. We should have you back on. We can argue about more of this stuff, you know, because you're Right-wing Bismarckianism is a fun foil for me. Um, (laughs) Congratulations on the book. More important, congratulations on the progeny. Thank you. And that's it for this time. Thanks, Jonah. (laughs) 
So Raihan has left the building. Uh, as some listeners could probably tell, I could have nerded out for a while more. I wanted to really call him out on liking the New Deal, but we'll have to save that for another day. Um, Jack, what did you think of that whole thing? I well, Raihan is awesome. He's uh, he's Ross Douthat's uh, partner in crime, yeah. and I'm, as you know, a big Ross Douthat groupie. Still disgruntled that I keep missing the opportunity to miss Ross in person, but I'm happy I've met Raihan in person now. Got to catch them all. Got to catch all the reformacons. Do you think he's effervescent? Uh, do I have to answer this question? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I like Raihan a lot, and I like that he actually, I mean... Great podcast voice uh, he has. He does. He does indeed. And he he actually knows what he thinks about things and, and, and is willing to say them, um, which is sort of refreshing in these days where everyone wants to come to a sort of, oh, we just agree on everything, we're just expressing it differently kind of way. I, I kind of like that he's he's willing to own his Bismarckian, you know, pith helmet or whatever that thing is called. <laughs> and so, I, of course, I have some profound disagreements with him. But, you know, I, I think his point about one of the good things about being part of a movement or a magazine like National Review is that there's always going to be that you get better synthesis if you have strong opinioned, uh, strong-minded people of differing points of view who can point out the weaknesses in each other's stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the original National Review had these people in Bill Buckley's orbit that were, you know, everyone from a host of ex-communists um, and and sort of new nationalist types to people like, you know, Russell Kirk, who just wanted to stay home with his ghosts and, and, and all the rest. And uh, I should explain to people the macabre rictus line. You know, that's 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 what takes over Jack's face when I'm going too long. And apparently the reason for that is you just don't know when it's going to stop. Yeah. I mean, I can't. It's sometimes hard for me to tell the or to discern the arc of the podcast. It, Often because there's not one. <laughs> <laughs> the arc has to be retroactively imposed, sort of like a uh, connect the dots painting. Yeah. Um, so that's why the macabre. And it's not. We don't have this space that we are recording this in forever. I understand. Um, and so I get nervous. You're, 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 when it comes to podcast time, you're Malthusian. Um, so we are recording this on um, Halloween. Well, ti- time is not – well, time is and isn't a, an unlimited resource. I mean there is a lot of it, but you don't get to do everything. Anyway, never mind. Irrelevant rant. Um, uh, this is opportunity cost is, what I, this is the word I'm looking for. There you go. I mean um, liber- ever, that's, a, that's like a free, an, an economic concept that has not died with Malthus. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, we're recording this on Halloween. This is the first Halloween in about a decade where I am not going to get dressed up like a zombie uh, with my wife and daughter, um, which while I'm a little nostalgic for it, I'm also kind of relieved not to do it again because it was getting kind of weird. Uh, Plus, you don't really need the makeup anymore, do you? No, that's true. And we should point out that we just did a AI video about John Locke and zombies, which mm-hmm. we'll link to in the homepage. What are you doing for Halloween? Well, I think I actually, so last year I went to the Exorcist Steps and finished reading The Exorcist. I remember you did that. And I remember my daughter being freaked out that you did that. Yeah, it was, uh, if anyone, well, it'll be too late probably by the time this comes out. But uh, if it's not, or if you're looking for plans for Halloween next year, 
and you're in D.C., go to the Exorcist Steps. It's a good time. It's just it's just fascinating to see who shows up there. Uh-huh. But this year, I read Rosemary's Baby and watched the... I've already watched the film adaptation, which I'd never seen before. That's my wife's favorite horror movie. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's very well done. It's it's The scares are... are it's a much subtler film and book than The Exorcist, but it's... Yeah. Ju- it's, in its own way, it's just as unsettling. And, and the, the scariest thing about the movie is the way that... Is the social horror, in a way, because people are... People manipulate politeness to their own ends, which I find terrifying as an introvert. Uh, no, that's right. Um, and, you know, it'd be interesting. I, I, I should Google around for it. You know, I wrote that piece about how the Marxists love the movie They Live. Mm-hmm. You could see how someone could write an admittedly stupid but interesting piece about how it's not really Satan. It's Frankfurt School Marxism or some other thing motivating these people um, because there is that sort of facade, double agenda kind of thing going on in it. So but all right, so you read the book and you watched the movie. So what, what does that mean for tonight? Are you going to like eat raw steak and, or something? <sighs> oh, I'll just, I'm just going to think about them. Uh, I, I wanted to I, – I like to read and watch horror movies and books around Halloween because it just doesn't seem like a fruitful activity to do at any other time of year. You've seen The Shining, of course. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, I haven't read the book, though. Um, I've not read the book. I, you know, I've read – I don't think I've read any of um, – what's his name? Stephen King. Stephen King. <laughs> um, I don't like horror. I mean, I, I'll be just honest about it. I'm a big, Boo! <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big baby about that. a lot of that stuff. I just I, – I don't like feeling anxious the way horror movies and all that kind of stuff do. So I'm always – it drives my daughter and my wife crazy because they like horror movies. Kudos to you for doing this, uh, this podcast in the same room as me for so long then. Yeah, no, because you you also give me a really creepy sense of anxiety as well. Well, Kyle Smith says I sound like a homicidal robot computer. I can't defend you against the charge. <laughs> I'm sorry, um, Kyle. I'm afraid I can't do that. Um, we, uh, um, I got back uh, the other day from North Carolina, where our, my former intern and a the ho- a co-host of your um, co-panelist co-panelist of your podcast, uh, the Young Americans was my sponsor and host, Alec Dent. Uh, so I want to give him a shout out and say thanks for having me down. It was a nice crowd. Someone did bring booze for me, but I just, I couldn't bring it on the plane. So I said, thanks, but no thanks. But a couple of people brought me cigars, which I'm very grateful for. And one charming lady brought a tennis ball for my dog, Pippa. Oh, um, and, uh, I also want to give a major shout out to, uh, our own Jack Butler here who won I mean, literally won, as in came in first place, the Marine Corps Marathon 10K. Not the marathon. Yeah, I didn't win the marathon. Uh, but you came in 14th last year in the marathon, right? 15th. 15th, okay. Yeah. I've been getting that wrong for a year now. And, <laughs> it's okay. Um, but 14th place is going to be so mad if he listens to this podcast. <laughs> and, but you came first in the 10K. Correct. That is mutant stuff and weird, and I'm really impressed by it. And it's almost like... You are in every way a cautionary tale about how I live my life. <laughs> um, but congratulations, because that's serious stuff. That's really very, very cool. My, even my daughter was very impressed because she's into cross country now. I know. I am so. I'm just. I uh, occasionally in your in your volley of tweets, one about cross country sneaks in there, and it just warms my heart to see you part of this culture that I come from. Yeah, I, I, I like it more and more. We she had her. They had the finals or the championships or whatever you call them last weekend, and. I, I really like the atmosphere of the thing. It's kind of cool. It's kind of team-based, but it's also not. And mm-hmm. 
everyone kind of encourages everybody, and there's probably more cheering for the person who comes in last than the person who comes in first. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I, I think it's kind of great. Um, yeah, cross country parents are the best parents. Cross country athletes are the best athletes. It's just there's no contest in my view. I have I, I have no comment on that. But um, I'm happy to stand by that. I'm sure I'll get people mad at me, but that's okay. I do have a question about the 10k. Yes. Do you think not to not to belittle or take back or or denigrate your accomplishment, but do you think there's a certain amount of adverse selection in the sense that the people who come to Washington to compete in the Marine Corps Marathon do it for the marathon? If you had, oh 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 yeah. So if you had to say the top fifty finalists from the marathon running in the 10k. How do you think you would have done in that field? Oh, that's a great question. And yes, there is definitely adverse selection. I, I think that the, the field of the 10K is definitely weaker than the field for the marathon. I just didn't really feel like doing the marathon this year. I'm doing Boston in the spring, so I didn't feel like doing another marathon in the fall. But there will be races for the rest of the, uh, this fall that will be more competitive than this and will give me a better sense of where I stack up against a more a more competitive field. So I'll keep the remnant listeners updated now that people are invested in my success, bizarrely. Um, and So that is a fair, that is a fair criticism. And it's if not you, a criticism. It was just a question. Or a, a, fair, a, a fair asterisk. And you also might as well put another asterisk on there that... That you stabbed that guy who, <laughs> who was trying to get past you. Well, that and the, uh, like, the time that I ran would, would be... It's pr- a pretty standard like collegiate cross-country athlete time. Uh-huh. So you like th- make me throw me in like a... Uh, average cross country or collegiate cross country 10k and I'll I'll do okay. Okay. But so yeah, asterisk asterisk away. Look, you you freaking won. That's it's it's really impressive. So the do you have a um a time or a uh place that you're aspirationally looking for for the Boston Marathon? I would like to go sub 230. I ran a 23429 uh, at the Marine Corps Marathon last year. And that was my first marathon, so I think I can so go. That average per mile is what five fifty three pace. Wow, per mile. Um, all right. Well, um, I could, I could easily do that on a, on a really good scooter, <laughs> uh, electronic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, no, I just wanted to say congratulations. That's great. And lots of people asked about you in North Carolina. People asking about you on the road. Again. More people ask about my dogs than you. That they're much more famous and much more deserving than I. And uh, other than that, we're going to try and record a Ben Sass podcast this afternoon, and uh, that's why the day is kind of crazy. And I'll just put it here because I like how if you drop little bombs or mentions on this podcast, it eventually gets to their intended audiences. That's true. So uh, I want to apologize to the. Hoover Institution, I owe them a chapter for a project that um, I have been working on for the last couple of days, and uh, this podcast stuff has intervened, so I probably won't get it done until tomorrow, but you'll get it soon. And um, there's other stuff, rank punditry stuff, that I really want to talk about, but we've gone pretty long now, so we'll save it for another, because there's always going to be an opportunity for rank punditry. Always. Punditry is always rank. All right, so our thanks to Podium, our thanks to our listeners, thanks to everybody who came out in North Carolina, um, and thank to everybody who's reviewing uh, The Remnant on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, whatever. Please subscribe. Please tell people to subscribe. And you can find us at theremnantpod at gmail.com. Correct. And at Jonah Remnant on Twitter. Until next time, uh, this is Jonah Goldberg. You got, I just foreclosed any opportunity for you to say something pithy. <laughs> you did. <laughs> you could have said something pithy. All right. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>